My, what a wonderful crowd. And not a single one of us is drunk tonight. What's wrong? <laughs> it's Saturday. My name is Erhard, and I am a grateful, yes, I am a grateful recovering alcoholic. And I'm also a grateful member of Al-Anon, and so the other half of you can say hi. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> the better half. Um, the, uh, it will probably, uh, uh, you probably already have noticed that I talk funny. It's because I am from Springfield, Ohio. Uh, <laughs> Seriously, people there talk like that. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually, originally, I am. I was born in Germany, and uh, uh, somehow that interferes with my Springfield accent. <coughs> I've been a member of uh, AA since January the second, and that's an important date. And I'll hopefully probably explain that to you why it is that since January the 2nd of 1984 and uh, uh, I've been in Al-Anon off and on but I would consider myself a more regular member of Al-Anon since about uh, 1990 eight years ago whatever that is um, I need Al-Anon because I think that I might very well not be sober today if it hadn't been for Al-Anon. I just want to say that. It has really added enormously to my recovery program, which is still basically an AA, um, because what I am is basically an alcoholic. I don't know if I was born an alcoholic. Some people say that, uh, or whether I was... Uh, uh, well, I learned to use alcohol, and uh, it got to be very, a very close friend of mine, which it did. I don't know any of those things. In fact, I, I, I realize right now I have to let go of the little bit that I might know because it's only interfering with what I might have to tell you. Because before, the, uh, before uh, my lead, I had a brief conversation with God, and I told him, and I, I've mentioned this to some of you. I told him, okay, it's your turn to take over. And um, so you're on. So here I'm really just standing here mouthing. And what's coming out of me uh, is God. You better listen. <laughs> this, this is heavy stuff coming your way. Yeah, I was born in Germany uh, at the beginning of World War II. Um, and uh, I experienced quite a bit of it. I was born into a, a, a wonderful family. My parents were not alcoholics. Uh, and I thought that alcoholism uh, was simply alien to my, to my heritage. And so I started looking at my grandparents my uncles, my aunts, uh, and my cousins, and finding out that almost all of them are or were alcoholics. At least, no, not all, many of them. 
My parents were not. Uh, my mother was a, a sufferer, uh, and she was. Um, she would have really benefited from Al-Anon if she had known that. Um, and my father was a rager. That's how he medicated. Um, there was no alcohol in my uh, early childhood that I remember. Uh, I do remember once uh, ha my father having a glass of beer, um, which I couldn't understand. This was much later when I already had more expertise in alcohol consumption. And uh, he asked for a glass of beer, and I thought, that's weird. You don't drink beer from a glass, because that way you get two containers wet with the, with the stuff. You see, that's a waste. You understand that? Uh, so, but anyway, I poured him a glass of beer, and the, the, the bottle didn't fit into the glass, so of course I finished that part of it. And then he had half of that beer, and it stood there. And I was watching, and he didn't finish it. He never did. And I really thought, that's what's wrong with him. He rages and he doesn't drink. So, uh, this was, as I said, this was much later. Um, my childhood was, uh, uh, as I said, it was, uh, I, I would in retrospect call this traumatic, uh, uh, not on account of my parents, but on account of uh, some of the experiences I had as a very young child. During World War II, I saw dead people. I saw people who were uh, uh, what they call uh, uh, something like burn shrunk corpses, adults that are about this size, uh, uh, and, and things like that. I, I did see that. I also was in a, in a bomb shelter that uh, received a direct hit, and part of it collapsed, and uh, uh, the part that I was in did not. But I heard people whimper on the other side of it. And um, uh, that was not pleasant stuff. That was not what I would call the, uh, the reason for my alcoholism. Um, as I said, I don't know if there is one. I do want to tell you this particular story, though. My, um, my parents were, uh, in, in my high school, where I went as a, High school in, in Germany started very young, uh, so when I was there, I was maybe 12 or 13 years old, and it was a boys' high school. There was a girls' high school a few blocks away, and uh, there was a time at which all the boys and all the girls, I suppose, took dance lessons. This is ballroom dancing, okay? Everybody did, except for one person, namely me. I wasn't allowed to. My parents were against it because it, uh, it was sinful, or at least potentially sinful, and um, because, you know, it would produce, um, you know, it would bring bodies of the opposite sex in close proximity, and th there's, a, a, you know, the problem of friction, and, and so on. Um, So we had a we had a dance in a gym there, and I didn't. I, I might, you notice I'm telling Bob's story all over again. I'm glad he's gone, but uh, 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 you know. And, and then second half is Pixie's story. I'm, uh, our stories are very very similar. Anyway, uh, I was at this dance, and everybody got up and danced funny, and they they looked so stiff and so. Now one other thing we had there, and that I comforted myself with, was wine. 
uh, Mosul wine in the in the in the in the nice brown bottles. Anyone who knows that, that's what it is. And uh, so um, here I was sitting all alone, and there were some girls sitting there all alone, you know, who hadn't been asked to dance. And I drank wine, and I drank a whole bottle of wine. And at the end of that bottle, all of a sudden, something happened to me. What happened was I could get up just like that and walk over to the absolute most beautiful girl over there on the other side and ask her to dance with me. I'd never danced in my life, mind you. Not even alone. <laughs> and we danced. I don't know what I did with my feet, but I'll tell you one thing. It was dancing, and people smiled at me, and I was very happy. And, uh, and the girl was also very nice and was, uh, you know. And there wasn't too much friction either. So, and, and <laughs> so anyway, um, now here comes a principle that I think, it, it's originally, I think, an economic principle, uh, but it's also definitely a principle of alcoholics. It's called the pig principle. And the pig principle goes like this. You, you know the pig principle? Anybody? Good. The pig principle goes like this. If something is good, then more of it is better. <laughs> so I had another bottle of wine. I mean, you know, this had it could only go up, up, and it could only become better. I had another bottle of wine and got up again and fell down. So that was. <laughs> but I didn't remember that. What I remembered was that the wine had suddenly empowered me. I have a picture from when I was maybe seven years old, and I was sitting, it was a class picture from uh, where my family had been evacuated out of my hometown of Cologne because our house was gone. Uh, where my house used to stand, there's now a road going through my ex-house. And uh, the, uh, the picture showed this entire class, including me. You could pick me out immediately. I'd ask, who in this picture has low self-esteem? And it was me. I was sitting lower than anyone else, for one thing. You know, I, was, I, was, I stuck out negatively, like a sore thumb. I still, I still have that picture. It was, it's right there. It's at home. I should have brought it. Um, I, I should have. Um, I was, I was beset by low self-esteem. I was, uh, I had a strong sense of abandonment. One time I was abandoned by my mother, against her will, but I was abandoned. We were separated, and uh, I uh, uh, refused food for a whole week. I was five and a half years old at that time. I know because it was when my mother was about to give birth to my only sister. Anyway, uh, low self-esteem, low uh, uh, trust in myself, uh, and a profound sense of unworthiness were part of my life, my early life. That's what I really was like. And just a little bit 
of a preview here. Today, that's not me anymore. That's a very significant statement for me. I can really make that. I'm okay today. I'm not perfect, but I am really, really okay. Now, part of uh, uh, my low self-esteem was that I had to make up for that. I had to make myself worthy and worthwhile. And how do you do that? You make yourself indispensable. You make yourself good, perfect, free of errors, and very, very, very productive. Those are the, were the qualities I aspire to, and those, for the most part, were the ones that I achieved. I achieved in school, I, uh, and I'll tell you a little bit about that. Um, I did everything right in that regard. The alcohol didn't initially do too much to me. I, drank, I enjoyed drinking because it gave me this profound sense of power. Alcohol became my good friend, my best friend, because what it did was it opened things for me. It opened a window. You know, cloudy days. We all here in West Central Ohio know about cloudy days. You know, and every once in a while, I have the sense I need a piece of blue sky, just a little piece of blue sky. I need it urgently. And it's not there. And when you see it, it's like a window. There it is, and it's wonderful. You know. And if the sun shines through it, my God, what a gift. Isn't that beautiful? I love it. That's what alcohol did for me. It opened a window. Now, there was a trick to be learned here. I didn't learn that right away, but I picked it up. The alcohol would open a window. Now, if I had too much, the window would close again, would be shut. And there would be nothing I could do about it anymore, you know. And I never figured out how to keep it open, you know, because the pig principle got in the way, you see. It always got in the way. I came to the United States in 1958 to visit my parents who were living here at the time, had been here for a while, and I uh, wanted to visit them. For At that time I was engaged to a lady in Germany, and, uh, I, uh, you know, I wanted to keep my return trip open, and so there was a convincing reason why I should go back to Germany. I didn't want to get stuck in the United States. And um, so I, I came here briefly, and unfortunately... Then the engagement broke off, and I, here I was. So the only thing to do was to go to school, and I went to school. I went to Queens College. I went to city, uh, all in New York City, the City University of New York, and then I went to eventually the University of Cincinnati. And um, uh, uh, at the University of Cincinnati, my first year, my, oh, by that, by that time I was married to my first wife. We had a child, and uh, after I'd been in uh, Cincinnati for a year. Uh, my first uh, child, a son, died by falling out our apartment window. And that was another very, very traumatic experience. And um, uh, up until that point, I did not drink alcoholically, I want to say. I enjoyed it a great deal. I found it real powerful, good stuff. I mean, really. 
But from that point on, something else happened. What happened was that I started developing nightmares. And I had them every night. And it was somehow a nightmare by which if I would run down the stairs fast enough, I could avert my son's death. And these were sweaty, screaming nightmares to the point where I really didn't want to sleep anymore because they came every night. And they did that for about a year. Um, by that time, my first daughter was born. And uh, we had moved to another place. And uh, we, we gave, uh, my, my wife and I gave a party. Uh, you know, we weren't constantly uh, grieving our son's uh, death. We, we gave a party, and uh, it was a very alcoholic party. And when it was over, something was left over. Um, you know, half full bottles, and also one completely full, untouched bottle of scotch. And it was called Teacher's Scotch. Ugly stuff. Uh, I, I'm not a scotch drinker, as you can tell. Uh, uh, but I took this bottle, and I remember you were talking. Now, who was it? Somebody talked about the experience of deciding I'm going to drink. That's what I did there. This bottle, I said, this is my bottle. I am going to drink this until it's gone every night. Three nights later, it was gone. And those three nights, I hadn't had a nightmare. Wow. I told you, my friend, alcohol was my friend. It did good things for me. I went to the state, uh, state store, and I've never bought scotch again. Uh, but I, I found out that there are other good things to obtain in a state liquor store. Uh, and uh, uh, Pixie and I were talking about it briefly here. I quickly set up rules for myself. Because, you know, I wasn't just an alcoholic. I was no alcoholic. I want that straight, you know. I didn't become an alcoholic until January 2nd, 1984. <laughs> that's, that's really true. Um, I learned some tricks of the trade. Drink after 5 p.m. I never missed a day of work. Never. Never got a DUI. You see... I didn't drink in bars. I, I, I have on rare occasion, but it was only an uh, uh, acts of desperation. In general, I would not drink in bars for several reasons. Number one, as Bob told you, the bartender is always too slow refilling. Number two, expensive. You know, for the little bit that I get there, for the same amount of money, I could get a lot more in the state liquor store. Um, and thirdly, and that's probably the most important one, I didn't want to associate with these people who were in the bars, alcoholics, yeah, drunks. I had nothing to do with them. I drank at home. I learned that uh, Windsor Canadian and uh, uh, Tanqueray Gin were my solutions. Uh, uh, I needed uh, Tanqueray Gin before dinner at 5 o'clock. I had a nice... Uh, Martini glass, uh, 14 ounces. And, um, <laughs> that's before dinner. And, and then after dinner, I would retire after having yelled at my kids, 
educated my kids, excuse me. Uh, uh, I would retire to my study and uh, dictate on my little dictating machine. And in the meantime, I would drink uh, Windsor Canadian uh, with, together with beer. Uh, just low beer. You, you don't want to overdo that because it fills. Uh, um, I would um, do that. And I remember, you know, I, at that time I did a lot of dictating on my little dictating machine. And I would do it until I could tell what I just said was slurry. You know, and I didn't want my secretary to hear me speaking in a slurred speech. So, I would try it a couple more times, and if I couldn't, that was the point I wish I would stop dictating. <laughs> From that point on, I would just uh, begin to relax then, until I would fall down, usually, and uh, uh, pass out. Sometimes when I would wake up from that, I oftentimes found myself lying on the, on the uh, floor there. And um, when I would wake up, I would go to the bathroom and look at my face. And I would see this very, very sick-looking face. You know, the puffy, reddish. And can anyone uh, understand what I'm talking about? It's either your own or your significant others. I mean, one... One of us looks that way. And, uh, and uh, it's, um, it's an ugly face. And I would see that, and I would start cursing myself in, in very uh, f uh, fluent, although drunk, language. And uh, I, I would uh, make myself a promise. And the promise would be one of two. Either, tomorrow, Erhard, you are not going to drink. Or the other one was, tomorrow, Erhard, you're going to drink responsibly. <laughs> I always chose the second option. <laughs> but you know what the first drink does? The first drink wipes out every rational decision regarding drinking from that point on. I told somebody... I'm convinced that today I could have just one drink and stop. I believe that. After 21 years in the program, I could have one drink and stop. But from that point on, my days would be numbered. Because if I have one drink today, even if I go without one tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, I'm going to have another one. And that won't be just one. My first wife was very uh, concerned about my drinking. At first she was a good drinking buddy, but she was not an alcoholic, you see. She was a drinking buddy. She was an enabler. Then she was supportive. Then she was tolerant. Eventually she became intolerant. And the last stage was she became intolerable. <laughs> see, my colleagues, my friends... None of them knew that I was drinking too much, that I had a drinking problem. And God forbid, all of a sudden, here in public, she announced that Ehud is an alcoholic. And I wanted to say, why do you say those things about me? Well, because you are, she was. I had long discussions with her, and 
nothing did any good. I could not convince her otherwise. I'm going to uh, jump the gun here a little bit and go, go ahead to the point at which one day she did something really weird. She took our four children and disappeared for an evening. My kids were early teenagers at that point. And um, disappeared, was gone. I didn't know where she went. We didn't have cell phones then yet. At least I don't think we did. And um, she uh, came back a couple of hours later and I said, Oh, hi, where have you been? You know, I didn't drink so much that evening. You know, it was uh, just in case there was some emergency. Oh, she, was, she had gone to a meeting, she said. And I said, with all the kids? Yeah, yeah, they'd all gone to a meeting. What kind of meeting was that? Oh, it's nothing. Um, then eventually I was squeezed out of her because it happened again. It happened again. A week later, she, went, she was gone again with all the kids. Eventually it turned out, I found out, she went to an, a so-called Al-Anon meeting. And I asked, what's that about? And she said, well, it's for uh, family members of... Uh, Alcoholics. And I, I said, because your father's an alcoholic, is that why? <laughs> he was. So, I asked, you, uh, is this, does this serve to, to fix me up, you know, to, according to your liking? Sure, no, she said. You know, and I started looking around the house, you know. Where did she put the, excuse me the strategically placed literature, you know, that would cure me of my alleged disease. And there was nothing there. She didn't discuss the, the, uh, what she was doing. Not, my kids didn't either. It was like a, a conspiracy. <laughs> the Al-Anon conspiracy. That's what it is. You know what? That was the one thing I could not tolerate. I mean, I, I'm not talking about the conspiracy. I'm talking about Al-Anon. That she was taking care of herself, that she didn't need me. I had been the provider, you know, and a good provider, I want you to know. You know, I, I, did, I did a pretty good job. And here, all of a sudden, she was doing this all by herself. She didn't even ask my approval or my advice. Nothing. She just up and went. Al-Anon. I have to backtrack a couple of years before that, several years before that. I, I want to show you this. At this point, my wife was already at the uh, on, uh, highly intolerant stage. She, um, she insisted I was an alcoholic and I... Uh, insisted I was not, and I was going to prove it to her. And I would like you to know, I was also addicted to a few other things, and one of them was power, control. I can still do that. But anyway, I was going to prove that I was not an alcoholic. Now, how do you prove that? You prove it by not drinking. And that was the hardest thing, and I did it. And I want you to know, I didn't drink any alcohol for three months. And I spent three months in sheer hell. <laughs> I white-knuckled 
three months solid, I was in misery, but I did not drink. Not even when she wasn't looking. I, I really didn't drink. And, you know, and I was waiting for the moment. I was waiting for the moment that she would come to me. And the only appropriate way to come to me would have been to come to me on her knees. And she did not. She never came to me and said, Erhard, I am so sorry that I said you were an alcoholic. I know now that you are not. After three months, I decided I've made my point. If not to her, to myself. I'm going to have a drink tonight. And I don't know what got into me, but what I did buy for that was, you know those five-quart bottles of wine they had? I think it's five quarts, isn't it? The big ones there. Uh, and it was, I think it was Infandel. I didn't finish that, but I bought it. I also went to the state liquor store, and I bought a half-gallon of Windsor Canadian. And I did it in order to have this much Windsor Canadian in a glass. No, big glass, but this much. So anyway, why I would need a half gallon to do that, I don't know. But, uh, but I think the alcoholics among you know why. I think the Alanons do too. Um, that's all I had that day. And of course, you know what I did the day after that. Because my usual quota was about a, a, a quart of... Uh, uh, liquor a day at that point. Um, that was the end of my responsible drinking. And uh, nothing was ever said about that. You know, next stage was she went to Al-Anon. I couldn't take that. I ended up talking to a buddy of mine, a buddy of mine who was a minister, no less. This uh, minister, I met him in his church office there, on New Year's Eve, 1983. He and I had done quite a bit of drinking together. He was one of the few people with whom I would drink on occasion. In my study, in his study, and he had a pool, by his pool too. And uh, I poured my heart out. This was an afternoon. I talked to him for about an hour and a half, and he listened to me for about an hour and a half, patiently. It surprised me and bothered me a little bit that he didn't offer me a drink. But he didn't. He had me talk. And when I was done, he said to me approximately these words. Well, I don't know whether you have a problem with life or with alcohol. If it's with life and it's not with alcohol... I really don't know what to say. I can't really help you. If it is with alcohol, I have a suggestion for you. And you know the hairs on my back? You know what I'm talking about? They're not long, about this. But they are capable of standing up. <laughs> and I should have never asked. But I did ask him. What would that suggestion be, I asked. And he said, how about an AA meeting? And I thought, you rascal. I felt betrayed by him. I asked him, are you in AA? And he said, yes, I have been for about a half a year. It was actually more like nine months. 
I felt abandoned all over again. Yeah. What a mean thing to do to a person. You know? Here he was, and he, he, he did this to me, just like that. I thanked him politely, and I made up my mind instantly, right then and there. I'm going to do this. I've done it before. I can do it again. Tonight we, have a, we, we had a party planned at my house. Okay, New Year's Eve party. So, uh, I was going to have a New Year's Eve party at my house, and at the stroke of midnight, I was going to stop drinking forever. So, we had the New Year's Eve party, and here it's 12 o'clock, and the ball is coming down, and everybody sings, and kissy kiss, and huggy hug, and champagne, champagne, after midnight. And I realized in a fleeting moment, I can't have that. But then I thought, ha, ah, champagne, that's not alcohol anyway. So, <laughs> so I had champagne with everybody. So that was that. And then I turned around and I noticed there was a glass. And that glass had gin, gin and tonic in it, Tancred gin and tonic. And it was mixed by me for me, which means I knew the proportions. There wasn't much tonic in it. And that glass was nearly full. And I realized, now this I really cannot drink anymore. Now I ask those of you with, a, with an alcoholic mind, what do you do in a situation like that? You drink it. That's the solution. I mean, you can't let it, not, you can't let it go to waste, obviously not. So I realized I've blown my deadline. So I might as well blow it good, <laughs> as usual, you know. And uh, uh, I drank along with everybody else, I thought, uh, even after they were long gone, I still was drinking with them uh, until whatever time I passed out again. And the next morning, I realized that I had not been able to stop when I wanted to stop. That was a blow to my ego again, you know. So... I called Bill. That's the guy. He turned out to be significant in my life in other ways. Uh, he became my first sponsor. He, uh, he also married my wife and me years later. I mean, to each other. So, uh, <laughs> he, uh, I said, you know about that AA meeting? You offered to take me to one, didn't you? He said, yeah. Have you been drinking today? This was on January 1st. I said, no. He said, today began at 12 o'clock midnight. I repeat my question. Have you been drinking today? And I said, oh, well, if you want to be that picky about it. He said, <laughs> he said I want to be that picky about it. I said, well, yeah. He made up his own a uh, sponsorship rules, by the way. You notice that? He said, well, you can't go to a meeting today. That's what he said. You can't go to a meeting today. He was lying to me, I found out afterwards. <laughs> the only requirement is a desire to stop drinking. <laughs> anyway, he told me I couldn't go to a meeting. He said, don't drink today, and I'll take you to a meeting tomorrow. You pick me up, and we go to a meeting in Xenia. Xenia is, for those of you who are not from here, you're all from here. Xenia, is not <laughs> Xenia was wonderful because it wasn't in Springfield, so it wouldn't ruin my reputation. So um, he said, pick me up. And we'll go there. From that point on, the Tuesday night trip to the meeting in Xenia was a regular for us. I did the driving. He did the talking. 
And he wanted me not to talk. And uh, incidentally, after the first meeting, or second meeting, after the second meeting that we went to, he told me, for the first half a year in AA, you don't talk. You listen. <laughs> Maniac. <laughs> On the way to the meeting, to that first meeting there on January the 2nd of 1984, you see, none of this went my way, you realize that? On the way to the meeting, he told me how this meeting goes. He said, it's a small meeting, maybe a dozen people there, we're sitting around these eight-foot tables, and, you know, at the beginning of the meeting, we go around and everybody says, hi, my name is so-and-so, and I'm an alcoholic. So you can do whatever you want to, but that's what people there do, one by one. And I said, oh, I, I can do that. I can fake that too. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I knew there for a moment. That means that I am saying here the words, I am an alcoholic. <clears throat> when my turn came, I said, hi, I gave my name and I said, I'm an alcoholic. And I started crying. And I had no idea why I was crying. It wasn't like I was upset or bothered or anything. I started crying. Snot and tears. <laughs> I couldn't stop. I had to use paper towels. Or, or toilet paper, one or the other. I forgot what it was. They didn't have Kleenex there anyway, or puffs. And I did not stop the entire 60 minutes. I never stopped crying. I didn't realize until much later that I was crying because I realized at that point I had just taken my first step. I had capitulated. I had given up. I couldn't do it anymore. And I knew it. And that was the end of life as I knew it, you see. That's a very, very scary... The first step is a very scary proposition. It is a life-and-death proposition. And let's not play games about this program. This is a life-and-death program because you do it or you die. That's what it's about. I took that first step there. It didn't take any length of time for me to get over it. You know, after that meeting was over, even after the end of the meeting, I remember talking to my good friend Reuben. Then I said, uh, you know, was the first time I met him there. He wasn't my good friend then. Uh, he was even the wrong skin color. How could he be a good friend of mine? So anyway, uh, I, I, I said to him, uh, so uh, how long have you been doing this? And he said, oh, about 13 years. And I remember thinking, oh, you, and I smiled, oh, nice. And he, I thought, oh, you poor soul, how long does it take you? <laughs> Thirteen years, and he still didn't have it. <laughs> I planned to get into in, in and out of AA in a matter of about two weeks because I realized the 12 steps were important, so I was going to take them and then get out of it. You know, who needs that? And, and I was sort of thinking, a step a day keeps the doctor away, this sort of thing. Uh, but, um, and I did. Pretty much. I skipped some steps altogether. 
you know, step nine is a nuisance. Uh, uh, <laughs> fifth step, too. I mean, you know, anything that involves talking to other people or even writing down things, you know, I, I did things mentally in my head there. When I was uh, done with the 12 steps the first time through, I realized I hadn't done any of them at all. I also realized slowly, this isn't working for me. Because what I was doing was, I was doing the meetings. I was not doing the program. I want to tell you something. I've I've made my life a little bit easier in AA in understanding this. There are two components to this for me. One is the fellowship. And without the fellowship, I couldn't do the other. But the other one is what keeps me alive, and that is the program. And the program, in a nutshell, in a nutshell, is the 12 steps. I've got to do those. I've got to do them all. I've got to do them. In, in the big book it says, here are the steps we took, which are and then comes this precious word, which are suggested as a program of recovery. Suggested my foot. <laughs> I could be more direct about that. Suggested is a suggestion if you want to live. That's the suggestion. If you want to live, do these. Do them expeditiously. Do them quickly. Make it a full-time job for the rest of your life. Now, none of us are perfect. It says that right there in those same pages. None of us uh, do these steps perfectly, you know. But we do them as best we can, and then a little bit more. And to do them, I couldn't, I couldn't do a single one of those steps without guidance, without assistance, without immediate and intensive help. The help I get is from the fellowship. I get it from the fellowship, and that is, for me, the primary tool that the God of my understanding uses to speak to me. There. That's how it is. You people, right there. Yeah. You realize this? You're all here, and you think you're getting something out of me. No, that's not how it is. I'm getting something out of the fact that you're all there supporting me in this wonderful support group that's here right now. You know, it's just so incredible. And it's so incredible that this support group, I have a support group everywhere. I gave my last lead in Germany, in German, no less. I I do speak German, there. (laughs) And, And I gave it there. They were also part of my family of my real family. This is my real family. You see? You guys are. That's what it's about. You're not crazy anymore. You're there with your heart. You're listening to me with your heart. And I don't even know what's coming out of me, but it's it's probably whatever is in my heart, whatever God is putting in there. My, my brain isn't doing a lot of good things these days. It has never cured me from my alcoholism, you see. It didn't. And I was smart. I, I mean, I'm still smart, just not wise. You know? I was, I was I'm just retired. I, after 60, 
no, after what? 36 years as a professor there. And I did, you know what I did while I was drinking? I did research, cold-blooded, publishable, published research on alcoholism. <laughs> you wouldn't believe how many laboratory rats I have made drunk. If you think that's funny, it isn't. I really did. And I got, it, I got away with publishing it, too. I, I implore you, don't try to look me up and don't try to read them. It's trash. It has nothing to do with alcoholism. Rats aren't alcoholics. They, they can drink until they fall on their backs. I've seen that. I mean, but they're not alcoholics. Because they don't have an alcoholic mind, you see. They may have the physical disease even. I don't know if they do. But you see, I've got two diseases. I've got a physical disease. It's called alcoholism. And I've got a mental disease. You know what it's called? Alcoholism. I'm mentally ill to this day. In both of these diseases, today I'm in remission. Today, I haven't had the desire to drink. Today, I still am a sick pup mentally. Not as sick as I was. I don't lie as much as I used to. I don't steal anymore. Although, even in recovery, I have stolen. It didn't certainly quit when I went into AA. You know that it took me five years after my recovery, after... after my, my birth date, so to speak, in AA in 1984, it took me five, six additional years for me to go into inpatient treatment. I went to Sierra Tucson in Arizona for a whole month there because I have other addictions. I'm also addicted to relationships, and uh, that was making my life unmanageable all over again. I'm good at switching addictions. You know, I can go from one to the next. I'm also addicted to gambling. I'm also addicted to cigarettes. Now, those I quit before I even got sober on, on my own willpower. That I could do, but the alcohol I couldn't. In Arizona, it was the first time I did a real fourth and fifth step. Until then, I did them vicariously, you know, like, I pretended I wrote it down, but I didn't really write it down. And I pretended to talk to somebody, but I didn't really talk to them, to anybody. You know, I, I did it just in, you know. Well, if I were to talk to you about this, about, you know, my inventory there, I would say the following, that sort of thing. But I didn't say that to anybody. In Arizona, I did. I did the sixth and seventh step. They're quick. If you do them right, go to page 76, half a page. That's six, steps six and seven. But you've got to do them. And then step eight. That was a nuisance. I didn't like that at all. Uh, I dragged my feet on that. Do you know when I did my last ninth step? About a year ago about a year, a year and a half ago, thereabouts. 
I did it with my younger daughter. You know what I had to tell her? I have stolen money from you. This wasn't peanuts. I've stolen big money from her. And I had to tell her that. And I had to tell her that I was sorry. And I had to give her an envelope that had cash in it. A nice little thick stack of $100 bills. And I made it cash so there wouldn't be a check for her to sign. It had to be cash. And I did. I gave it to her. And you know what happened as a result of that? This same young woman who some years ago broke off all contact with me just shortly after she got married. She broke off all contact with me. She wrote me a letter saying, do not call me, do not write to me, do not visit me, do not inquire about me. I want no contact with you at all. If I ever want it, I'll let you know. That's what she did. And I thought, oh my God, what if she's going to have a baby and I won't even know? Two and a half, two and three quarter, almost three years ago, later, one day I got a phone call from her. And she said, Dad, I'm going to be in Springfield, Ohio. I'd like to visit you. That was the beginning of the healing for me, of our relationship. Of course, she had been in therapy in between and all sorts of things. Uh, me too, for that matter. But she, here it began, but it wasn't good yet. It wasn't good. It wasn't a good relationship. It was still a distant relationship. After I did my last ninth step with her, and really paid the cash. You know what amend, amendment means? It means changing. You know? It means fixing up things. That means paying cash. That's what it means oftentimes, among other things. Not just apologizing, or oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. No. Make it up. And after that, our relationship all of a sudden turned wonderful. My older daughter, who has five, I have a total of nine and about, about nine and a half grandchildren. Um, uh, one is on the way, uh, due in June. Um, so, nine, nine and two thirds. Uh, I, uh, I have uh, my uh, older daughter, before they had any children, she and her husband once told me that. If they ever would have children, I would never get to see them. This is long after I had been sober. You know, I'd been sober. What was wrong? I was sober, but I wasn't in recovery yet. I was saved by the grace of God from getting drunk at the time. See, I was doing, I was doing the fellowship, and I wasn't doing the recovery program. I needed to do that too. And eventually, it started. And a big part of my recovery actually began intensively through my going to Al-Anon. You know, I have to tell you that. It's the fellowship of AA that's wonderful, and the fellowship of Al-Anon that made me realize, holy cow, I've got to do something, otherwise 
I'm going to be one of the, the casualties. You know the casualties, the people who've been in the program for 15 years or longer, and then they fade away. And then you hear about them, usually in the obituaries. I know them. I know those people. And I'm sad about that. And I don't want to be one of them. And it's real easy to do. This is an action program. We've heard that more than once. It is an action program. I've got to keep doing the program. I used to make fun of people who would say, you've got to work the steps. I'd say, you don't have to work steps. If I want to take the 12 steps from here to the bathroom, I take the steps. I don't work the steps, crying out loud. I was humbled into realizing, yes, Erhard, you have to work the steps. Because the difference is, when you work the steps, you do it with humility. And you do it with the guidance of others, with the guidance of your higher power. Am I running out of time? I'm going to say one more uh, thing about uh, the God of my understanding. Because he, and for me it happens to be male, uh, he is... uh, the reason why I'm here tonight. Uh, the God of my understanding uh, is very, very different from the God I understood before. Um, uh, Pixie was talking about the many times she's been baptized. I've been baptized a couple of times myself. I remember the time when this elder came up to me and grabbed me right here and I, was, I wasn't even 12. I was maybe 11. He said, Erhard, have you been born again? And his eyes just penetrated me. And then he said, and I stood there and I was, oh, shoot. I, that's not what I said. Um, I said, I don't know. I don't know. He said, There is such a thing as too late. And it's before you die. It's right here on earth. You've got to do everything to be born again. I tried. I tried. And no matter what I did, I I was born again. Half a dozen times, eight times, thereabouts. And the only problem with being born again that way was that uh, it never, as you said, it never took. It never took, you know. Every time I had been born again for a couple of days or so, there was another pretty girl. And, you know, that's sin. That's sin. Girls are sin. That's, uh, did you know that? That's, that's, that's what it was in my, in my early understanding of life. And eventually I got to a point where I said, well, what the hey, might as well sin. <laughs> then I tried the church thing, the formal church thing, the high church thing, you know, with uh, smoke and, and all those things, and uh, that didn't take either. I'm not trying to put down uh, organized religion, but I am going to tell you that right now, I'm not associated with any organized religion, with any church, for the simple reason I need to just live with the God of my understanding and I get him through the fellowship and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
God talks to me. And God also listens to me. And I can talk to this God in ways that I couldn't do in church. I have a so-called, can I do this? I'm going to, you said we don't cuss in, 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 uh, uh, behind the podium here. But I, I have a so-called, I have a prayer, a special prayer. I'm going to share it with you. And I'm doing it seriously. I mentioned this prayer to a minister once, a former student of mine, uh, a woman. And I said, I have a prayer, and it's called the Oh Shit Prayer. And it goes like this. Oh shit, God, oh shit, God, oh shit, God, oh shit. <laughs> and she said to me, that'll work. You know what? It works for me. Because what am I doing when I say that? I'm saying, God, I don't know how to handle this. You know? And what am I doing with my inability to handle it? I'm going to God. And that's what it's all about. Those are the first three steps. You know? There they are. It works for me. I am so grateful for the new life I have gotten through this program. It's, it, I'm born again. Yeah, I, I, can, I can't call it any, anything else. I know that has other connotations. I don't mean them. I mean, I'm born again. I ha, I'm living a different life than I used to live. And it's a good life. My kids actually talk to me. You know? What an amazing blessing. This past weekend... We had five grandchildren that we babysat in our house all weekend. Their parents were off on a cruise. There. I even talked to my ex-wife. And she talked, you know what we do when my kids were all over the country? And, you know, and, and my wife's ch uh, children, you know, between the two of us, we have six kids, six adult kids. And sometimes when we celebrate things like Thanksgiving or so, and they all congregate in Springfield for Christ's sake, Ohio. That's, that's part of a poem, by the way. Uh, <laughs> it, it really is. And when, when, we, when, we, when they all gather in Springfield, Ohio, from California and Michigan and Texas and you name it, when they all are all of a sudden there, you know, it used to be that my kids were torn. How many hours are we going to spend at moms? How many at dads? We found a solution. I found a, I think I found a solution. We do it together. We do it at my ex-wife's house. Or we do it at my house. Sometimes at one, sometimes at the other. And lo and behold, for so many hours, it works just fine. You know? That is, that's all part of the recovery program. It is. You know? It works. This program works. You know? We say at the end of the Lord's Prayer there, keep coming, or, <laughs> no, I can't do it. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. It works if you work it. Let's do it. Thank you.